Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast exploring horror in comics, films, and fiction. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a look inside The Long Box of Darkness. Hey there, horror hounds and eerie enthusiasts. Welcome back to another spine-tingling episode of The Long Box of Darkness. I'm your host, Herm, and boy, do we have a show that's going to make your skin crawl. Maybe your mind will wander a little into the uncanny today, because we're diving into three different realms of horror, as usual. Um, And of course, weird fiction is included in that list, and each... Uh, segment of this episode is more chilling and thought-provoking than the last. But first up, for you comic book fiends, we're journeying back, way back, to the gritty universe of 2000 AD this week, and we're digging into a savage classic from that esteemed British magazine, and it is a prog, a storyline called Shaco. <laughs> so it's some animal horror this week, folks. And uh, yes, this story combines Arctic terror, a lot of animalistic horror. And of course, they combine this in a way that only 2000 AD could pull off. Imagine Jaws, if you will, but on ice. And instead of a shark, you've got a ruthless, murderous, near invulnerable polar bear <laughs> and his kill count is high in fact it makes jaws's paltry little number look pathetic in comparison and after that we'll warp reality a bit as we dissect the iconic and uh, deeply deeply disturbing film donnie darko Uh, So if you've never questioned the fabric of the universe or maybe pondered time travel a little bit after watching this movie, you're in for, let's just say, an existential roller coaster. (laughs) And then last, but definitely not least, we're stepping into the world of weird fiction again with Jeff Vandermeer's anthology, which is very hard to come by. Uh, But I'm sure after you hear us talking about it, you'll try your best to track it down because it's worth it, folks. And this is a book called The Thackeray T. Lambshead Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases. So uh, get ready to discover some ailments that you've never, probably never heard of uh, in a world that uh, sort of balances on the edge of the fantastical, uh, the scientific and the horrifying. Uh, It's kind of like a medical guide that you've never imagined. It's going to hopefully turn your perception of disease upside down. So I've got those three entries coming up today. Um, So get ready, grab your your garlic, your vampire kits, (laughs) your uh, arcane tomes, 
and let's delve into the long box of darkness once again. All right, let's get started with our first segment. It came from the long box. All right, as we mentioned, today we're tearing through the pages of 2000 AD, and we're discussing the ferocious and unforgettable storyline, Shaco. It's a tale that's so hair-raising that it shook me to my core when I was just a little lad, which is when I first read it. So, um, yeah, this story started its savage journey in Prague 20, and that's way back in 1977, and it roared its way through to Prague 35. So it had 16 installments, and... um, each more bloody than the last. Now, um, a little bit of facts for you. Shako first hit the scene in my birth year, which I mentioned before, 1977. And uh, for the uninitiated, of course, 2000 AD wasn't just any comic magazine. It was a legendary British anthology, a treasure trove of science fiction, sometimes fantasy, but also a lot of horror. Hence, something like Shaco. And each issue was usually packed with five to six progs or programs, as they called them, um, individual stories. And it's, of course, the birthplace of uh, none other than Judge Dredd. Uh, That is their claim to fame, although they've produced many other characters and properties which would rightfully stand side by side with Dredd easily. And of course, it's still captivating readers to this day. I would recommend you guys signing up for the 2000 AD subscription service, which is digital and online. Of course, you can also purchase the physical progs in local comic stores at your LCS. And they've also uh, got a host of great collections, mostly in hardcover, that they're putting out year after year, collecting their greatest stories. And this is, of course, done by Rebellion, Rebellion Press, which owns 2080 uh, at the moment. Hopefully they'll own them forever because they're doing right by them. And they're also reprinting classic British comic strips, which is not 2080 related, but it was published earlier. So they're sort of preserving the legacy of British comics over there. But let's get back to Shaco. <laughs> um, while the original run in the weekly progs Uh, was its claim to fame, of course. There's an overlooked sequel, uh, which debuted afterwards, called White Fury. And that debuted in the 2080 annual of 1978, so roughly a year and a half after um, the original storyline. And uh, that's sort of the origin of Shaco, this murderous killer polar bear. So if you haven't checked that out, you're missing out on another helping of icy animalistic terror. Um, But the main story, it's pretty gruesome, folks. folks, So let's get into it. All right, because we're about to delve deep into the world of Shaco, I should mention that you can find the comic book online and download it as a digital file uh, after you purchase it on 2080's website. And um, then you could also probably pick up the trade paperback, although I'm pretty sure that's out of print 
but it might be floating around on eBay. It might be available in some of your uh, frequently visited comic book stores. It's a thin little paperback, just uh, 16 short progs, but definitely worth picking up. And that's what I'm using today to bring the horror, the terror, and the awesomeness of Shaco to you. So first off, uh, it was conceived by Pat Mills, who's called the father of British comics, one of uh, the 2080s founders, of course, and Juan Arancio was his uh, co-creator on Shaco. And it was sort of writing the coattails of popular animal horror movies at the time. Um, of course, the aforementioned Jaws springs to mind. And Pat Mills had done an earlier strip for the boys' magazine Action over in Britain, which featured a Jaws knockoff called Hook Jaw. Uh, and that's something that I still want to discuss on the Long Box of Darkness in the future, because that makes Jaws look like a minnow. <laughs> really, there's some seriously terrifying oceanic, uh, uh, you know, bloodletting happening in that comic book. So we'll get to that, though, folks. So Hookjaw was a hit with the readers. And then Pat obviously looked for a new animal horror strip that he could um, use to entice his uh, bloodthirsty fans. And then he thought, what would be scarier than a giant killer shark? Well, maybe what about a murderous polar bear? I mean, they are technically the most dangerous land mammal around. So the 16 progs they conceived uh, were all about this gigantic Arctic killer. And uh, they were penciled mostly by the great Ramon Sola. Uh, he's a Spanish artist. And if you want to see some of the images from Shaco, uh, he also did Hookjaw, of course. I will post them on darklongbox.com. They're jaw-droppingly beautiful. This guy could draw realism with a fantasy bend, of course, um, like nobody's business. And he was particularly great at drawing animals. So you'll see some real personality in Shaco there, which you won't see in a normal photograph, for instance, of a polar bear. But it's a, a real evil and sinister effect that he manages to convey. All right, so um, yeah, check out our supplemental post on darklongbox.com. I'll also put a link to that in the show description. So Ramon, he had a knack for drawing murder and blood as well. And even though 2080 was printed in black and white, like the Shaco story, which has never been printed in color, these days it's all color over there. Um, but these early tales weren't, uh, you could sort of see the blood, even though it's drawn as these black splashes uh, all over the place. It's definitely a very bloody comic. Um, so he had this very realistic style, and that, of course, made the horror even more pronounced. So here's the synopsis for Shaco. Um, all right, the story goes like this. A top-secret CIA transport plane carrying an experimental bioweapon housed in a metallic capsule, crashes somewhere in the Arctic Circle. The two pilots, intent on securing the capsule, abruptly find themselves under the assault of a giant homicidal polar bear who seems to have this intense hatred of humans. And the bear, who's named Shako by the local Eskimo, 
And the translation for that in Eskimo apparently means killer. He swallows the capsule containing the bioweapon, apparently thinking that it's food, canned food, which he's encountered before, and then proceeds to brutally eviscerate the pilots. And after that, of course, the CIA is fully immersed in hunting down Shako to get their hands on, to well, to reclaim this capsule with this experimental virus in it. So it's a simple premise, but um, uh, it gets more complicated as the story continues, folks. So now this is the twist here. The CIA can't just go in with guns blazing and mow down Shako with high-powered weaponry because they might inadvertently damage the capsule and then release the virus. So they kind of have to play it smart. They have to trap him. They have to see if they can tranquilize him, capture him, you know, with other innovative uh, techniques. But they soon discover that Shako is no ordinary polar bear. I mean, this, this is a bear that kills giant walruses for fun. And he's even killed killer whales in his time, even while a cub, <laughs> giant for his size still, but so he's a terror of the Arctic wastes. And if any human, particularly humans, intrude on his territory, they become food. So he loves the taste of humans, but he also hates humanity. And then, um, that okay, of course, episode after episode then follows of Shako foiling the plans set by the CIA and their bounty hunters, their trappers who are sent after the Shako. And then eventually he is captured, though, and uh, drugged. But he manages to escape. And in the process, he tears off the arm of this character called Jake Falmouth in the process. And um, Falmouth is the CIA uh, commander of that region. And so uh, this is now an all-out revenge-driven pursuit of Shako initiated by, by Falmouth, who's called Foul Mouth by his um, subordinates, <laughs> because he is really foul-mouthed. And um, uh, it becomes kind of like a Moby Dick, Captain Ahab dynamic. But eventually, even the Cold War-era Russians get involved and Shako plays, ends up playing a deadly game of cat and mouse with the poor Russians as they are hunted to extinction um, on their whaling ship, which was unlucky enough to, to be Shako's temporary prison for a while. And finally, not even Falmouth's uh, CIA manpower is able to save him from the jaws of Shako. And uh, eventually only a mortally wounded Buck Dollar, uh, who's... It's kind of the the hero of the story. He's this half Eskimo CIA operative. Um, He's left to curb the murderous rage of this insane polar bear. Now, I won't spoil too much, but I will say that the ending is uh, suitably epic. It involves a a killer, well, a a terrifying looking harpoon and then a polar garbage dump. (laughs) <laughs> which serves as the final, uh, the, the, the setting for the final confrontation. And then, wow, I guess this, this strip really shows how much we suck as humans because there's even garbage dumps in the Arctic Circle. And then finally, 
the cherry on the cake, it also involves a bazooka. <laughs> so an epic showdown. Uh, in you know, it's definitely worth uh, looking at and reading. I'll I won't spoil it too much though, because there's a twist at the end, but it's pretty good. Now, just some highlights from the Shaco story. Uh, most of them are his best kills. So the first up uh, on the list is Shaco. He kills a crew of kill crazy CIA assassins in a snowmobile by luring them onto thin ice. And then as they crash into the depths, they freeze to death in seconds. So Shaco, very cunning there, but this is the least of his kills. It gets, it's get, it gets better from here on out. So Shaco uh, goes, at one point in time, goes one-on-one with a giant uh, vodka-saturated Russian brawler who was stupid enough to pick a fight with Shaco, a bare-knuckled uh, fight with a giant polar bear, by, get this, letting him out of his cage to see, you know, who's the better fighter. And, of course, the fight didn't even last five seconds. <laughs> and then, uh, at one point in time, Shaco wades through a medical outpost in uh, the Arctic, and he kills doctors, patients, nurses, everybody. Just mows everybody down indiscriminately. And and while there, this toughest nails nurse called Nurse Hatchet. <laughs> so there's obviously a play on Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Net. This nest, this Nurse Ratchet, she tries to kill Shaka with the defibrillator. Uh, but of course, that didn't go very well for her. <laughs> so, and then um, bizarrely, Shaka also... In this episode, he befriends an Eskimo boy called Unk Sumak. So Unk, he's kind of a traitor to the human race a little bit because he he sort of leads Shaka around uh, to the best kill sites. And uh, all the while he's mouthing off how, you know, the Americans should suffer for what they've done to the polar regions. And it's all their fault what has happened to the ex- Eskimos, etc. And uh, so... Um, he also, Ashako ends up doing Unk a favor by viciously mauling Unk's hated teacher, Miss Fuster. So, okay, there is some truth to the fact that the Eskimos there were forced into these re-education camps where the children had to learn English and learn the Western ways and things like that. But, you know, Unk takes it to an extreme here by getting this pet polar bear of his to just kill everybody. <laughs> And eventually, when Unk and Shaco park, part, Unk uh, muses that, you know, uh, the Americans have what was coming to them. They had what was coming to them. It's all, you know, uh, destiny for them to die beneath the claws of Shaco. And then um, later in the story, at one point, Shaco, he appropriates a cave, which he turns into his uh, sort of a pantry. And he stocks it, of course, get this, with live humans <laughs> so every time he's hungry you know he blocks the the entrance and every time he's hungry he returns to this cave and then just kills a human and eats him in front of the rest brutal and uh then um next on the list buck dollar the half eskimo hero um of course he's the only man to survive a shako kill spree but he does this by using his <laughs> weird eskimo superpowers he goes all Clint Eastwood on Shaco and ends up uh, sort of beating Shaco in a staring contest. Uh, 
Yeah, that's pretty weird. And he survived that encounter, which the rest of the folks didn't. And then uh, in the White Fury origin story, Baby Shako, he sort of undersieges his way through the ship filled with uh, armed humans in, and then uh, he sinks the ship at the end. <laughs> so pretty badass for a little bear. Well, little. I mean, that's relative, but he's, he's, it was even gigantic back then. And then finally, a uh, great scene. Shako ends up uh, fighting his hated rival, uh, his enemy, One Tusk, who's this murderous walrus, um, on par with Shako and Jaws. And then uh, what happens is uh, eventually Shako proves victorious and uh, he leaves One Tusk's body on the ice, uh, obviously planning to return to it later to feed. Uh, but the CIA see this as a chance for them to surprise Shako. And so they hide one of the <laughs> CIA killers inside the walrus's body. Uh, Tauntaun style uh, to blow Shako's head off when he returns. But when Shako gets back, the CIA assassin, he's primed and ready, but damn, oh no, his gun is frozen. So what happens next is uh, pretty much what you'd expect would happen when, let's say, I don't know, hungry Orson Welles sees a stuffed turkey on a plate before him at Thanksgiving. So that's it for that CIA agent. Yeah, he's Shako's dinner for that evening. So that's it for our Shako coverage. It's a bit of a fun horror comic, but very disturbing, very gruesome. It's uh, worth uh, noting that uh, this was, of course, done in the era when Britain had no comic book code to hamper them, which uh, the States had. So 2080 went all out with these stories, and you can see it in Shako. Uh, it's perfectly on display there. So, um, yeah, if you want to check out those images, remember to go over to darklongbox.com or click the link in the show notes description, which will take you directly to our podcast supplemental post. And then you can feast your eyes on the glory that is the art of Ramon Sola. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. We're um, about ready to get into our next segment, which is, of course, the Cineplex of Terror. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallized with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? Your cup, Tony. Imaginary. I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. I haven't seen stuff. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. <laughs> I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? <laughs> Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Look, every living thing follows along a set path. And if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? 
I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry. You got away with it. What is going to happen? I only have a few days left before they catch me. Stop. You should already know that. All right, welcome back. So we're talking Donnie Darko this week, which is a part of my 31 days of horror movie list, which I'm still diligently following. I'm now 11 films in, and I'm not even suffering from horror fatigue yet, which happened to me uh, the last year. Hopefully I can keep it going this year. This time around, I picked films that I really want to watch. I wasn't following a list that I sort of compiled because I thought it would look cool if I posted it on Twitter. This time it's movies I want to rewatch or movies I haven't seen yet. So uh, that'll, you know, um, inspire me to complete the challenge this year. But so Donnie Darko, uh, directed by Richard Kelly, Uh, was first released on January 19th, 2001 at the Sundance Film Festival. And uh, later, it had its theatrical release on October 26th, 2001 in the States. So this is another one of those films that I watched years after it debuted. Um, So I saw it at a video store one night and I picked it up. I think it was around probably 2005, 2006. And after the first watch... I was a bit conflicted. I couldn't quite make up my mind about the movie. Um, it was scary, but I, I wouldn't classify it as horror. Maybe some, you know, freakishly weird sci-fi. But watching it again a couple of years later uh, sort of improved my initial rating of the film. And since then, I've probably re- rewatched it uh, half a dozen times. Um, every time I watch it, I uh, gain a new perspective on... Um, what it tries to say. I dig down to a deeper layer and there's always more layers to this film. So yeah, it manages to creep me out every time. So what's it about though, for you folks who haven't seen it? Um, Well, uh, in it, we follow the life of Donnie, uh, a troubled teenager, of course, portrayed by Jake Gillianhall, one of his early roles. And Donnie lives in a suburban America in the late 1980s. And he's not your average high school student. He's kind of plagued by visions. He uh, sleepwalks a lot. Uh, And he's guided by this unsettling figure, this man in a terrifying rabbit suit called Frank. And uh, Frank, uh, at one point in time, informs Donnie that the world will end in 28 days, 6 hours, and 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. Um. So strange. And then after one of his nocturnal escapades, Donnie returns home to discover that a a jet engine has mysteriously crashed into his bedroom. So miraculously, he's unscathed because, of course, he was out sleepwalking, guided by Frank. And this bizarre event sort of sets the stage for a series of increasingly strange and bizarre occurrences. Uh, all counting down to the world's supposed uh, end. And as the days roll by, old Donnie 
He navigates this complicated social landscape uh, of his high school. There's some bullying. There's a, a new girlfriend, uh, some eccentric teachers. Uh, in fact, one of them, played by uh, Drew Barrymore, she introduces Donnie to the idea that the phrase cellar door is linguistically beautiful. <laughs> An idea that um, sort of comes to symbolize the the complex beauty underlying the film's darkness. So like I say, layers, right? Lots of layers to this film. And then Donnie, of course, continues to see Frank, who instructs him to carry out increasingly disruptive and dangerous acts. So uh, one of them is like, uh, for instance, he floods the school. Uh, he burns down a motivational speaker's house. Uh, these actions all seem uh, pointless or senseless, but um, they're all pieces in a larger cosmic puzzle. And along the way, uh, the lines between reality and, and delusion blur. And old Donnie delves into, well, what did you say? The, the physics of time travel or the theoretical physics of time travel. Um, he's inspired by this book uh, written by this local woman. Uh, she's considered to be mad by the community, of course, and... That's what gets him on this time travel uh, path uh, or this obsession. And then uh, at the end, this crescendo of uh, eerie events uh, leads up to Halloween night, very appropriate for our Octoberverse discussions, where uh, Donnie's reality unravels completely. And then his final actions sort of culminate in a tragedy that involves his girlfriend, Gretchen, and uh, a rift in the space-time continuum. Anyway, it's a it's a great ending. Very, like I say, bizarre. Um, but you definitely there is an understanding that is conveyed at the end. Um, in you know about Donnie and his grander scheme and things. So you know we see the characters at the end as well. We interacted with Donnie. Um, everybody seemed to have to to have occupied this collective dream, and then um, yeah, the world does not end not in the way we expected it to. But uh, there's definitely some uh, unexpected moments at the end which you couldn't foresee. So I would recommend any of you who haven't seen it to check it out and uh, leave some comments either by emailing us at contact at darklongbox.com or you could just comment on our socials whenever we post this episode or, you know, just uh, go to the website and comment over there. But um, definitely a very thought-provoking film and it maintains its eerie and creepy vibe uh, consistently, which is what I appreciate about it. So psychological thriller, sci-fi masterpiece, who knows, but there's definitely a strong horror element as well. So I'm uh, with that, I think I've said enough about <laughs> this movie because it could probably be talked about for another ha half an hour. So I better get on to the next segment. But yeah, let me know your thoughts on Donnie Darko, which I consider a classic of the horror slash sci-fi genre. All right, so our next segment, obviously, oral about weird fiction. If you listen to our previous ep episode, you know what we're talking about. And that is, of course... The Book Nook of Doom. So stay tuned. Don't go away. The most merciful thing in the world 
is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity. And it was not meant that we should voyage far. Madness. All right, for this week's Book Nook of Doom segment, we're looking at something that's probably the weirdest thing we've ever looked at before. And uh, what it is, is a collection of fascinating, what would you call it, imaginative exercises by a host of luminaries in the horror and science fiction and fantasy fantasy genres. So it's kind of an anthology of sorts, but cleverly disguised as a medical journal cataloging strange ailments. Uh, of course, these medical journals were all the rage among itinerant Western doctors traveling in Asia back in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but a journal like this one has never been seen before because, of course, this one lists the most bizarre and outlandish fictional diseases of all time. And it is compiled by the equally fictional Dr. Thackeray T. Lambshead who's a somewhat infamous figure in the medical field back in the day. He was an infamous figure. Um, he's a person who probably many of his contemporaries would describe as the original quack. <laughs> and um, so for today's Book Nook of Doom, uh, this is what I offer up to you. The Thackeray T. Lambshead's Pocket Guide to Eccentric and Discredited Diseases. So if you're up for a bit of humor mixed with your horror and your sci-fi and fantasy, then this is the book for you. So it was edited and compiled and probably conceived by a modern weird fiction master, Jeff Vandermeer, um, who was the subject of a blog post recently on darklongbox.com. So if you want to check that out, I'll link that in the show notes as well, because Jeff uh, doesn't get much weirder than Jeff Vandermeer, uh, as this book would attest. And of course, it includes this book that he's compiled, includes a host of illustrious contributors. Um, so among these are folks you'd all recognize, uh, KJ Bishop, Corey Doctorow, Neil Gaiman, China Meville, Michael Moorcock, and even Alan Moore, among many, many, many others. <laughs> so they all contribute to this book, each of them pretending to be a doctor, each of them pretending to have found or discovered a fictional disease that they then contribute to the Thackeray T. Lambsid Guide to Eccentric Diseases. So um, before we get into some of my favorite diseases in this book. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but actually it's not a boring book. You should read it for yourselves. Um, but I'll, I'll read some of the testimonials, which is which can be found on the cover here. Okay, from the San Francisco Bay Guardian. They say, this anthology is so demented and funny. It must be read to be believed. And then uh, from booksense.com, they say, imagine if Monty Python wrote the Mayo Clinic Family Health Book, and you sort of get the idea, afraid you're afflicted with an unknown malady, finally, you have a place to turn to. 
And then from Publishers Weekly, they say, An amazing book plays delicious postmodernist games that are sure to delight the discerning and slightly warped reader. So that that describes us in a nutshell, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> um, and then finally from the Village Voice, they say, Lamb's Head is just what the doctor ordered. All right, so um, I'm also going to read the back matter here on the back cover. Uh, just to describe the book, they say here, you hold in your hands the most complete and official guide to imaginary ailments ever assembled, each disease carefully documented by the most stellar collection of speculative fiction writers ever to play doctor. Detailed within for your reading and diagnostic pleasure are the frightening, ridiculous, and downright absurdly hilarious symptoms, histories, and possible cures to all the ills human flesh isn't heir to, including ballistic organ syndrome, delusions of universal grandeur, and the reverse Pinocchio syndrome. Lavishly illustrated with cunning examples of everything that can't go wrong with you, the Lambset Guide provides a healthy dose of good humor and relief for hypochondriacs, pessimists, and lovers of imaginative fiction everywhere. Even if you don't have Pencilers, lubriciousness, or Tian Shan Gobi assimilation, the cure for whatever seriousness may ail you is probably in this remarkable collection. <laughs> so, pretty cool if I do say so myself. Right, now I've highlighted two of my favorite diseases compiled by these two fictional doctors who are actually, you know, famous writers. And I will read them to you. If I read more, that'll probably take another hour. So the first one is, in fact, the disease that uh, opens up the tome. And that is the aforementioned, on the back matter, which they mentioned, the ballistic organ syndrome. <laughs> and uh, this is compiled by Dr. Michael Barry, <laughs> of course, uh, a writer. Uh, but in this case, he's occupying the role of the chief uh, medical doctor at the Institute of Psychi Psychiatric Venereology, use Australian Capital Territory. <laughs> Jeez, Psychiatric Venereology. All right, so let's get into this. Okay, every uh, entry of a disease is sort of separated into these different chapters. Uh, first country of origin, then the first known recorded case, then the symptoms, and then they have a bit of a history of the disease. They give a bit of historical context and then cures, and then finally end notes. So um, every disease runs about two to three pages of a very imaginative, whimsy and in most cases, of course, horror. Uh, okay, get this. Ballistic organ syndrome. Country of origin. Java in Indonesia. The first known case. Here they mention that ballistic organ syndrome, although rare, has been known since prehistoric times. In Australasia and Micronesia, cave paintings have been found depicting humans and animals with internal organs erupting from their bodies. <laughs> All right, symptoms. 
Ballistic organ syndrome manifests as a sudden, explosive discharge of one or more bodily organs at high velocity. This exit may be accompanied by some pain. Really, just some pain? There are two known variants. Subsonic ballistitis, in which the velocity of ejection does not exceed that of sound and distinguished by an explosive discharge from throat or anus, accompanied by a release of wet, atomized bodily contents. And then, supersonic ballistitis, in which the organs exit the body by the path of least resistance, breaking free directly through muscle, tendon, bone, and skin tissues. (laughs) So... Dr. Barry goes on to explain that, uh, you know, this is caused by some kind of a virus that causes um, the water of the body to uh, sort of pressurize and it creates this kind of high pressure uh, system, which eventually, you know, bursts and and then then just blows the organs out of your body. So then in the history section, uh, which this is, this is very interesting that there have been folks uh, back in history actually weaponized people suffering from ballistic organ syndrome. Listen to this. Uh, Okay, they say here, During the 1709 siege of Batavia, today Jakarta, the Sultan of Solo used ballistitis-infected slaves as catapult ammunition (laughs) in hopes of injuring and infecting enough of the Dutch defenders to render their fortifications untenable. Fortunately for the Dutch governor of Batavia, Peter van Tilburg. He was familiar with ballistitis from his servants as a surgeon's assistant in Celebes, today Sulawesi. Van Tilburg ordered the infected citizens be expelled from the city. Those infected individuals wreaked havoc among the besieging Javanese. (laughs) And then it goes on to describe a number of other historical instances involving ballistitis. And then there's a section on cures, but I won't go too much into that. That's also very funny. Um, but like I say, it's two to three pages of, of, of very pleasant reading uh, that you will have to do for yourself if you decide to track down this book. And then finally, one of my favorite entries in this book, and this is, of course, by my favorite comic book writer of all time, probably my favorite author of all time, Alan Moore who's not overrated. I don't care what anybody says. And this is the entry called Fuseli's Disease. And where ballistic organ syndrome had pictures of these catapults launching these people, um, Fuseli's Disease, this entry, has a picture of The Nightmare, the painting by Henry Fuseli, um, which I'll also post a pic of on uh, darklongbox.com, but you can also... Uh, check it online. It's um, this lady lying dreaming on a bed, um, and then this uh, horse-headed demon, and these figures out of the darkness looming above her. It was a very famous painting, the, the nightmare. All right, the description of Fuseli's disease, which is also called Borgesia simplex, is as follows: 
Alan Moore goes on to state that um, named after the 18th, the 18th, 19th century artist Henry Fuseli, whose most famed work is The Nightmare, Fuseli's disease is included in that small and as yet poorly understood class of pathologies referred to as the twilight ailments. And he says the symptoms of Fuseli's are unpleasant, yet at first quite unremarkable, a rash of red and painful blisters, not dissimilar to chickenpox, accompanied by flu-like side effects and, in some instances, mild hair loss. So, what's the big deal with Fuseli's disease after all? That's what Alan Moore seems to get at here. It has symptoms that a normal disease would have. You have, like, chickenpox kind of symptoms. You have a cold, some flu-like symptoms, hair loss. So, what's the big deal? Well, here's the kicker, folks. The pe peculiarities of the disease do not become apparent until we consider that these irritating and persistent symptoms only manifest themselves within the sufferer's dreams. <laughs> so Alan Moore is saying that this is why it's called, why it's named after Fuseli, because of this, this um, painting he did called The Nightmare, because these symptoms only affect you in your dreams. So is this terrible? Well, yes, because every time you go to sleep, you are dreaming of yourself being horrendously sick, coughing and, and itchy and, and bald. <laughs> and then they say, uh, Alan, Alan Moore goes on to say that in typical scenarios, the patient will at first report an ordinary dream of, let's say, sitting at a university level exam in their underwear. Uh, but then the next time they have the same dream, they will notice that their private parts have this horrible rash and that everybody's laughing at them, not because they're naked uh, during the exam, but because of this horrible rash. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, they say that, well, Alan Moore mentions that celebrities suffer from this dream because from from these symptoms, because the, the way the infection works is if you dream of someone in your dream, and celebrities are often dreamed of, especially in a sexual context, uh, then that person's dream will be infected. So he goes on to say that, let's say, for instance, a fan of Alanis Morissette dreams of her. Uh, she will then be infected. <laughs> and he then it gets really meta, folks. He says, he goes, Alan Moore goes on to say that uh, the only known cure would be if a sufferer of Borghesia simplex, Fuseli's disease, actually dreams themselves taking a cure and then they will be cured. And then if they dream of subsequent people also getting the cure, they in turn will also be cured. But this is the problem. He says that the, the cause of Fuseli's disease might be just uh, completely like a meme, you know, something that has been generated, a thought that has been generated and now has been disseminated like a virus through media, possibly originating from a writer who came up with the idea of Fuseli's disease, then wrote about it in a medical journal like this, and then allowed people to read it, thereby spreading the meme, the idea of Fuseli's disease, and that's how the disease manifested itself. So what he's in essence saying is that he is the person, the origin of Fuseli's disease, simply by coming up with it, writing about it, he created a meme, um, and then you just disseminated that. So thank you, Alan Moore, for giving us Fuseli's disease, which is now plaguing thousands of celebrities worldwide. You know, um, <laughs> so fantastic stuff here from 
the Thackeray Tea Lancet Guide. All right, so that's our recommendation for this week, folks. And uh, I guess that brings us to the end of another Long Box of Darkness episode. But before we go, I do want to give a shout out to some uh, folks who commented on our previous episode and welcome back the Long Box of Darkness to the Potterverse. And uh, these folks are as follows. Um, of course, Professor Frenzy Jerry Jerry Green himself, uh, he's been one of our staunchest supporters and um, we're also big fans of his show, this Professor Frenzy show. So I want to give a big shout out to Professor Frenzy, Jerry Green himself. Thanks, Jerry. And uh, Jerry uh, commented on our show and he said, you know, he loves the Charlton horror that we discussed and he also loves the horror host we mentioned and he's glad that the Long Box of Darkness is back. And he boosted our post over on Blue Sky. So if you want, listen to the Professor Frenzy show. If you haven't checked it out yet and follow Jerry on Blue Sky, still on Twitter as well, at Jerry Green. But just look for the Professor Frenzy show and you'll track him down. So thanks for that, Jerry. And then also thanks to Multiverse Mike, Chris Halton, and Spanish comic book fiend Nevada on Mastodon for their kind words commenting on the last episode we posted. Uh, much appreciated, guys. And um, I'm glad the Long Box of Darkness is back. Of course, I'm going to try to keep it going as long as I can this time around and on a more consistent, uh, in a more consistent manner. But for now, that's it, horror fans. Uh, join us again next week for another terrific show, stuffed to the brim with comics, uh, movies, and, of course, the fiction of the weird. And then also... Uh, if you want to send some feedback, do so by mailing us at contact at darklongbox.com. That's our email address. You can also follow us on socials. We're at darklongbox everywhere on X, Facebook, Blue Sky, Mastodon, Threads, etc. And uh, also head over to our blog, darklongbox.com, to check out more horror, sci-fi, and weird fiction-related content. And if you um, could, it would be uh, greatly appreciated by us if you could boost us by sharing our posts and also commenting on our you know episodes and maybe leaving a review on itunes and for that we would be eternally grateful all right so with that this is herm signing off until we meet again sweet screams horror fans bye bye <laughs>